0: The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that gives you the power of beautiful design. So you can do more than create a website, you can set yourself apart. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com guardian.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's podcast with me, Claire Armistead. One of the most hotly anticipated books of the new autumn season has just hit the bookshops. We're not talking Terry Pratchett's 41st Discworld novel or the first posthumous edition to Stieg Larsen's Millennium Trilogy, but the fourth volume of a novel in progress, or perhaps it's a fictional memoir from a pseudonymous Italian author. Here's what Guardian editor Kath Viner had to say about the impending publication of Elena Ferrante's The Story of a Lost Child.
2: I first heard about Elena Franti a couple of years ago when I had read the first volume of the Knausgaard memoir come novel and absolutely loathed it. I was complaining about the bloodless prose and the kind of banality of this man's life. <laughs> and also complaining about how highly praised he was being and very irritated by it. <laughs> um, and a colleague said, oh, if you hate Kanausgaard, I bet you'll love Franti. There was a lot of buzz around her, um, particularly in New York. So, I, you know, I remembered that. And then when I moved to New York, uh, it was about 18 months ago, she was everywhere. Her books were in all the bookshops, very long, serious articles about her entire oeuvre and all the big, serious journals. So I bought the first book of the trilogy, My Brilliant Friend, and I just feel like I read it without breathing out. I just didn't breathe out once. I was just suspended in this amazing world that was entirely different from my own and yet entirely recognisable. It felt like when I first saw a film by Jane Campion, this kind of exuberantly, messily, passionately female world, this kind of entirely recognisable, but to me, not very often written about world. Um, It's quite soapy as well. You know, it's a real page turner. It's completely fascinating. And I can't wait to find out what happens next.
1: With me in the studio to discuss it are Daniela Petrarco from the publisher which had the good taste and fortune to publish the English translation and Uberfan Nabila Shabir. Daniela, Congratulations! Thank you. Mm -hmm. This is a real coup for you. You run Europa Editions. It's a small publisher.
3: Europa Editions is a publisher that was founded in New York in two thousand and five, and four years ago we set up a London office. So I run Europa Editions UK. Yes. So am I wrong in saying it's a small publisher? Is it actually Um, a huge multinational? Well, it's a small independent multinational. And were you instrumental in finding this? I was not, no. The publishing house was founded by Sandro and Sandra Ferri, who are Italian publishers and who are the publishers of Elena Ferrante since the early 90s. So tell us about the publishing history of it. Well, Elena first sent her first book, Troubling Love, to Sandro and Sandra via a friend and they read it and immediately fell in love with it. She sent it already with a provisor that said that she would not be involved in any publicity, that she would not want to appear as the author of the book in public. Um, The publishers loved it so much that they didn't see a problem with that and published it. After that, her second book, Days of Abandonment, uh, was the real breakout book. It was shortlisted for prizes. It won prizes. It was a bestseller for many weeks uh, in the Italian bestseller list. And when it was published in the US, which was in 2005, it was in fact the first book published by Europa Editions, it immediately became a cult book with a substantial following and it all grew from there. So the very first book that Europa Editions published... It's Days of Abandonment, yes. And it's just rolled on like that? It rolled on like that. Um, It took a while for the Neapolitan novels to arrive. The first one was published in Italy in 2011, and then one a year after that. Originally, as far as I know, Elena said that the Neapolitan novels, My Brilliant Friend, was going to be another short book. But in fact, it turned out into a four-volume, 1,800-pages fiction. Her previous books, then, before this Neapolitan series... They were,
1: are all short. But they are also
3: sort of memoir, are they? Um, I mean, there's a bit ne- of a question about what they are, isn't there? Well, nobody knows how much of a life there is in the books. They could all be memoirs, or they could be fiction. We don't really know. Um, Elena has always felt that The fact of not appearing in public gives her total freedom in what and how she chooses to write. What do we know about her? We know that she was born in Naples. Uh, We know she is in her 60s now. We know she's been married, she's had children, she lived abroad. Uh, She was a teacher, I think, for a period of her life. And that she's definitely a woman. Have you met her? No. Have the publishers met her? The publishers, only Sandra and Sandra have met her. Um. Now I'm going to bring Nabila
1: in because your little eyes are twinkling. <laughs>
4: <laughs> uh, well, actually, I just wondered in this day and age of like social media, you know, and everything, how does one manage to maintain their anonymity? I mean, because that's actually quite a lot of things to know about Ferrante so far.
3: Um, I guess, but not so much if you look at how much we know about other authors or personalities. Originally, her decision was down to her personal preference, but it has grown into a realization that if you leave an empty space where the author should be, the readers will get to know the author through the words that she writes, so they will get to know the author Like one of our characters, these are not my words, this this was Megan O'Rourke. But yes, I very much agree with that and so does Elena. That's something that she really likes.
4: So what what is it that you love so much about it, Nabila? Um, So I was once told by a former colleague who is from Naples that he saw Naples as Napolistan. I'm Pakistani. So he wanted to make this connection with me by saying that where we came from... Pakistan and Naples were very similar so when I read the books I mean it's got nothing to do with Pakistan but it's this sort of element of a close cultural you know community and this relationship with these people and and this whole sort of veritable story of people growing up in the suburbs of Naples and never being able to leave those suburbs that I found really really attractive it was that sense of location of course it's the way she you know describes the stories of the two protagonists the two characters but yeah, I, I'm very attracted to Naples 1950 and, and and reading more about, you know, how lives turn out from that point on. There's been a bit of a backlash
1: in Italy about it, hasn't there, recently? I mean, the Italian critics seem to have got snooty in the way that critics do when something becomes a runaway hit.
3: Um, the Italian literary landscape is very much made up of public figures who are also public figures in academia or in journalism, So there is some resentment towards Elena when she does not appear in public. There is this feeling that the one author who is celebrated outside of Italy should be carrying the flag for Italian fiction. And obviously Elena will not do that because she will not be going to events. She will not be going anywhere to talk about what's happening in Italy. On the other hand, I think it's unfair to expect that. And she should be free to do what she wants to do. And just the fact that an Italian author is so celebrated will have the effect of making people interested in other Italian authors. And she was shortlisted for the uh, prestigious. She was shortlisted for the Strega, writer. yes. She made the last five. Mm. And it was then won by Nicola La Gioia with a fantastic book, which will be publishing next year. <laughs>
4: well, but also, Roberto Saviano spoke up. Um, Roberto Saviano was the anthem. one who nominated her. Ah, so that's how the
3: strega works. So you it's like the
4: outsider nominates the outsider.
1: Yeah, in a way. Robbie, Roberto Saviano being. Yeah.
4: You. Oh, oh, he's an anti-mafia writer. Who he is the author
3: and- of Gomorra, uh, the novel and, and film, and he he has appeared in public, but he has to live under police escort and and protected still because. obvious reasons because of what he uncovered in his in his work
4: this is famous for a book in translation but I just wondered how in terms of the Italian prose what is it similar to I mean because I haven't heard many Italian friends reviewing this book it's more like you know because the New Yorker made such a big deal of it this is the book you have to read so I've really heard about it in sort of Anglo-Saxon circles but I'm curious to know what the resonance is in Italy. Is it just equally as, you know, Ferrante mania, Ferrante Fever?
3: Oh, it it's huge. Again, I mean Ferrante's always sold well, but she never sold hundreds of thousands of copies until the Neapolitan novels really broke through. And that was a couple of years in. And the success in the US and the UK and elsewhere has had a resonance and has helped italian sales there's one question about this that keeps coming up is
1: the extent to which it is something that appeals to men as well as to women and i put it out on twitter because lots of people were saying oh it's just very it's very girly and actually a lot of men have responded and said they really like it is that a criticism you've met daniela um...
3: no i have met a lot of men who said that they love it and i think these books are for both men and women. I I don't think there should be a...
4: The only thing I noticed about that was just that... So I was clicking a little bit on all those male reviewers, people who've said they love Ferrante novels, and a lot of them seem to actually be working in the world of literature or something like that. So that's why I wondered whether just a random guy in my sort of acquaintance would actually pick up this book and read it.
1: Or is it a question of whether they'll pick it up? Or yeah whether they like it once they've picked
4: it up that's the thing once it's forced upon them.
3: Okay, well, the covers may be girly
1: um, <laughs> uh, I
4: describe the covers
1: because this is nobody can actually see it. The
3: covers are uh, of, well, my brilliant friend, which is the first, has a scene from a wedding on it, but all the protagonists in the picture are facing away from the viewer, and this is carried through the four covers. So the idea is to have apparently light-hearted images that hide what the human figures in the image are actually feeling, showing or or living
4: through. They're quite colourful covers. So I initially To avoid getting into reading all of the four books, I bought them and then gave them away to friends as gifts because I said, I know this is a good book, I haven't read it yet, but you start it and then tell me how (laughs) it goes. And a couple of times the bookshop owner did say, oh, I wish they wouldn't use these covers because they do look, I mean, to judge them in a negative light, they they might look like sort of a romance novels, you know, front cover. They kind of might have a little element of that. That's a criticism, but it's also an opinion, so I don't know. Well, they obviously,
3: it obviously hasn't hurt the sales of the books. No, they yeah.
4: haven't hurt the sales
3: of the books. And yes, it's something to start discussion from. And yeah, I, I have met more people who had doubts about the covers than people who had any doubts whatsoever about the content. Yeah.
1: Is this the final one? The this is volume. the final one. This definitely, is absolutely the definitely final
3: never. one. Totally the story goes full circle. There is a very satisfying conclusion, if not pat in any way. I mean, the story has thriller elements, but, yeah, you don't get an easy resolution at the end. Well, let's now listen to a bit of it. This Guardian
1: podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you've got many options,
2: but if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, head to squarespace.com guardian. From 1976
5: until 1979, when I returned to Naples to live, I avoided resuming a steady relationship with Leela. But it wasn't easy. She almost immediately tried to re-enter my life by force, and I ignored her, tolerated her, endured her. Even if she acted as if there were nothing she wanted more than just to be close to me at a difficult moment, I couldn't forget the contempt with which she had treated me. Today, I think, that if it had been only the insult that wounded me. "'You're an idiot,' she had shouted on the telephone when I told her about Nino, and she had never, ever spoken to me like that before. I would have soon calmed down. In reality, what mattered more than that offence was the mention of Dede and Elza. "'Think of the harm you're doing to your daughters,' she had warned me. And at that moment I had paid no attention. But over time, those words acquired greater weight." and I returned to them often. Leela had never displayed the slightest interest in Dede and Elsa. Almost certainly, she didn't even remember their names. If on the phone I had mentioned some intelligent remark they had made, she cut me off, changed the subject. And when she met them for the first time, at the house of Marcello Solara, She had confined herself to an absent-minded glance and a few pat phrases. She hadn't paid the least attention to how nicely they were dressed, how neatly their hair was combed, and how well both were able to express themselves although they were still small. And yet I had given birth to them. I had brought them up. They were part of me, who had been her friend forever. She should have taken this into account, I won't say out of affection, but at least out of politeness, for my maternal pride. Yet she hadn't even attempted a little good-natured sarcasm. She had displayed indifference and nothing more. Only now, out of jealousy surely because I had taken Nino, did she remember the girls and wanted to emphasise that I was a terrible mother, that although I was happy, I was causing them unhappiness. The minute I thought about it, I became anxious. Had Leela worried about Gennaro when she left Stefano, when she abandoned the child to the neighbour because of her work in the factory, when she sent him to me as if to get him out of the way? (laughs) I had my faults, but I was certainly more of a mother than she was. Such thoughts became a habit in those years. It was as if Leela who, after all, had uttered only that one malicious remark about Dede and Elza, had become the defence lawyer for their needs as daughters. And every time I neglected them to devote myself to myself, I felt obliged to prove to her that she was wrong. But it was a voice invented by ill-feeling. What she really thought of my behaviour as a mother I don't know. Only she can say if, in fact, She has managed to insert herself into this extremely long chain of words to modify my text, to purposely supply the missing links, to unhook others without letting it show, to say of me more than I want, more than I am able to say. I wish for this intrusion. I have hoped for it ever since I began to write our story. But I have to get to the end in order to check all the pages. If I tried now, I would certainly get stuck. I've been writing for too long and I'm tired. It's more and more difficult to keep the thread of the story taught within the chaos of the years, of events large and small, of moods. So, either I tend to pass over my own affairs to recapture Leela, and all the complications she brings with her, or worse, I let myself be carried away by the events of my life, only because it's easier to write them. But I have to avoid this choice. I mustn't take the first path, on which, if I set myself aside, I would end up finding ever fewer traces of Leela, since the very nature of our relationship dictates that I can reach her only by passing through myself. But I shouldn't take the second either. For me to speak of my experience in increasingly greater detail is just what she would certainly favour. Come on, she would say, Tell us what turn your life took. Who cares about mine? Admit that it doesn't even interest you. And she would conclude I'm a scribble on a scribble, completely unsuitable for one of your books. Forget it, Lenu. One doesn't tell the story of an erasure.
1: That was the opening of the Story of a Lost Child in Anne Goldstein's translation. You can read a longer extract on the Guardian Books website. But does this fourth volume live up to expectations? I'm joined now by the critic Alex Clark, who reviewed it for The Guardian, and by the novelist and critic Jonathan Gibb, who took part in a public event earlier in the week about the novel. Alex, does it? (laughs)
6: Well, I think in a way, the idea that this is a quartet of novels is not quite right because it is almost like one great big novel. Each novel begins where the last one has ended. It is a sort of stream of consciousness in a way. It's people's lives from the beginning to the end. And there's a framing device. We know at the very beginning of the first book, My Brilliant Friend, that Leela, who is the friend of Elena, um, the narrator, have disappeared without a trace from Naples at the age of 66. We don't know why. And this last volume brings us back to that story. Jonathan, your
0: yes. view. Were you disappointed? Oh, not at all. Not at all. I mean, obviously, I've been reading these books over about three years now. I don't know what it would be like if you were reading it in one long go. I completely agree with Alex that you mustn't think of them as standalone books in any way. You mustn't pick this last one up and say, I'll see if this one's any good and go back to the beginning. But it's been a a hugely eventful reading experience going through the whole of this woman's life, these women's life, the life of this neighbourhood and this city from the 1950s through to the present century. And it wasn't a disappointment at all. It keeps you going on multiple tracks in multiple different ways as you go through the book. She's got a whole panoply of, um, of tricks to keep you hooked.
1: Alex, I described it as a novel. We've had conversations about what it is. In her wonderful interview with Vanity Fair, which was published just recently, they described it as a metafiction. She's been compared with Carl Ove Knausgård, who obviously is writing a fictionalised memoir, What is this? Of course, we don't know in one way because we don't know who she is. Her anonymity
6: is is sort of key to this whole procedure. She decided when she started publishing books in the early 90s that she wouldn't reveal her identity. So, in a way, how do we know whether it's memoir? All the interviews, including the one that you've just mentioned, are written interviews. We're piecing together bits of her life. But it is certainly true to say that she writes in what appears to be an autobiographical mode. And that is, of course, what has given her this sort of link with Nascar, but I think it's something much more sort of fashioned than that um Eleanor who is a writer does follow in many ways the career of this Eleanor uh, the two Eleanors are sort of indistinguishable as writers in a way it's yeah I mean she's
1: used her own name yes what is also
6: interesting is that Elena is also Lina, is also Lenu, um, Lenuccia. Lila is really called Lila. She's called Lina. She's called Raffaella. There are all these aliases throughout the book. There's constantly a tension between Italian and dialect. Everybody is not really who they say they are. And it seems to me that while Elena Ferranti may well have chosen to remain anonymous because she didn't want to implicate herself, because she wanted, as she says, her books to speak for themselves, the question of identity and or authorial identity is so key to this series of novels that it's hardly a
0: sort of accident. Absolutely. I mean, I think that her identity is as irrelevant as her anonymity is hugely important. Mm. The comparison with Nauskaard, I think, is slightly off-key. For me, the thing about Nauskaard's books, and obviously I, like most English readers, haven't read all of them yet, is that the point of the project is there from the word go. The sense of, uh, of self-investigation Uh, is clear all the way through, but what Elena Greco, the narrator, author, character in the Neapolitan novels is trying to do is really unclear. Certainly that frame device is set up with the disappearance at the beginning of the first book, My Brilliant Friend, but the strange thing is that for vast chunks of these 1,600 pages, the disappearance disappears. Mm. She just gets into the life of the friendship and the neighborhood and her career and all this stuff expands and expands and all these narratives and these family trees that need lists of characters at the beginning of the books seem to take over and colonize what could have been quite a brief narrative she says in another earlier interview that she set out to write this as a short standalone book like her three previous books she was just fascinated by the idea of a woman in her 60s who disappears and she wanted to write it as a a a short book like the other ones, and it just grew. The other strange thing that happens in the fourth volume, and I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, is that by the time you get to the fourth volume, Elena Greco, the main narrator character, is a very established author. She's written 13 novels and two collections of essays. One of those books is actually the book of her friendship with Leela. So she's written, it only lasts, it's only 80 pages long and that's the, the point at which she writes that is the point at which, well, that, that, that would be a spoiler, so I'm not going to say that. But, <laughs> um, but the, the strange thing is, what is this book that she's writing that she sits down to write on the morning that she finds out the friend has disappeared or very soon afterwards, and it takes her months and months to write? She's already written that story and published it, and here she is writing it again, but much more expansively, so the idea yes, writing of it for what the project yes. is, is is really ambiguous compared to Narsgaard.
1: And I want to bring you back. Alex, to the idea of Italian and dialect. How does that work in an English translation, the idea of there being well, it, I mean I mean, registers?
6: In, in, in a sort of literal sense, it doesn't. And I must say, going through it and realizing all these shifts, I wondered how it worked in the original. I wondered if the language actually changed so that a native speaker would be able to register more easily what was going on.
0: Oh, I, well, I can, I'll butt in to answer that very briefly, that there is no dialect in the original Italian.
6: So they are in, as it were, the same position
1: yes. as us. Do you read it in Italian,
6: Jonathan? I don't,
0: but again, I have that from an earlier interview, which I collected. Uh, It was a digital book from Europa Editions called Fragments, which is going to come out, I believe, in print edition early next year, uh, which is a collection of the various interviews and written responses that she's given. Uh, And she says there's a line about how she's too scared of the dialect. It's too aggressive and too violent for her to want to write in. Mm. So you mustn't think of it as being a sort of like a a Cornish dialect or something it's if anything you'd have to think of it like James Kelman or a sort of Gorbals Glaswegian where you know it's, it's a really tough dialect not just the sort of slightly
6: twangy thing well it is it is in the books used as as clearly as a sort of marker of elena greco getting further and further away from her parents her family the people around her but there's also a wonderful moment a bit later on in this book i think when she says of lila you know there were times at which my dialect was translated from italian and her italian was translated from dialect so you get that business of them just slightly missing each other even in the words that they use yes
1: The other big question about this is about whether it is a book for women which I know this makes Alex spit with rage, but it is something that has been raised by the Italian critics who seem to have a bit of a backlash against her yeah, going on at the moment. here we are back into Tessa Hadley writes domestic novels, Jonathan
6: Franzen writes searing critiques and satires of family life. These books are about things that do affect women, they are about women's lives, they are about being a mother, being mothered, they are about very overtly, as Elena puts it, the colonisation of women by the male imagination. But I think what is implied by that is that they're in some way feminine books, and that's what I reject. I just don't understand it.
1: She talked about the publishing industry and the media putting women away in a literary gynechium. I thought that was a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic phrase. A wonderful coinage. <laughs> Which we don't, we haven't heard before, but I mean, it is true, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, to me, these are books that are so
6: much more integrally about identity and about, for me, the book is about friendship and about the antipathy that we have towards our friends. You know, you could say on, one, on the one hand, it's about don't we all hate it when our friends become successful, but also about don't we all hate it when our friends don't become successful successful it's about the sort of impossibility of their relationship and also and key to the whole enterprise who creates whom who is the author of this book is it Elena or is it Leela slash Leela whose life she is just
1: continually drawing upon Jonathan as a man reading it
0: oh it's do you so recognize
1: weird. that at all I mean we talked a little bit with the publisher earlier with Daniela about the fact that these misty covers Quite girly oh, sort of covers, yes. really, aren't they?
0: I quite, and I, I find the covers amusing because it's a bit like when Martin Amos used to produce books or his publisher used to produce books which looked like airport thrillers. I mean, they are slightly kitsch, but what's inside is so far from that that i find them i find them i like the covers they're
6: another form of disguise aren't they yes apparently she really likes them i mean everybody says gosh aren't they kish aren't they gaudy don't they look kind of a bit naff but she really likes them and they are a kind of very effective disguise in a way
0: yes but i think the i mean there there's clearly the element of a female friendship has different dimensions to it than a male friendship there are possibly ways in which men rival each other through their friendships which they use different tools and different means of doing that to women so to that extent it is very much about women but it is written very uh it's not written in what i would consider a you know a feminine or airy fairy way it's gutsy it's full of blood it's muscular it zooms along i mean i'm not claiming those as masculine terms but i'm certainly Using them as terms that you wouldn't apply to something that you considered feminine. Mm. The thing about the women's side of the story is that this is a story of Italy and of Italian politics and of Italian organized crime over four or five decades, but told entirely through the women who are either sometimes actors in it, but obviously more often victims of it but it's it's saying you can tell that whole story and you can understand Italy through how it affects the women it is domestic in that it shows how the outside world reaches into the life that women are allowed to have but it certainly is a national story as well, to that extent.
6: I agree, and I also think what it does completely brilliantly is marry that very realistic story with what you just alluded to a little while earlier, was those lists of characters at the beginning of the book, arranged by family. It is a fairy tale. There is this fantastic sort of folkloric, the carpenter's family, the butcher's family, the grocer's family. It is like a fairy tale, combined with this tremendously gritty, realistic... And then the story of the imagination, and a massive psychological drama.
0: Yes, yeah. The bit that that slightly people when you know when people say, oh, you know, what's your guilty pleasure in reading? For all the toughness of this and the realism and the psychological insight, it is a bit of a soap opera as well.
6: Yeah, no, no worries about that. <laughs> because
0: when you realise the the horrible stuff that happens to all these people, there's no way you would read 1600 pages of that if it was unremittingly psychologically mm-hmm. violently bleak. So it does keep you going very much with a sort of uh, family saga aspect, and it, you know, if there is a feminine side to the book, possibly it's it's that insistence on family relations as being endlessly fascinating, which you wouldn't find in the the Franzen take on it.
1: Well, thank you, Alex and Jonathan. If that doesn't send people rushing off to order their own copy of the story of a lost child, then we've lost the plot. It's out now from Europa Editions. If you do read it, we'd love to know what you think. You can leave your comments on the podcast page just by searching for Guardian Books Podcast or you can join our tips, links and suggestions community on the Guardian Books website. You can access that by Googling those four words. Thanks also to Daniela Petraco and Nabila Shabir. Until next week from me, Claire Armistead and my producer, Eva Krishak, Arrivederci!
0: For more great downloads, go
5: to theguardian.com slash audio.